We're living in a very interesting time. I think that's safe to say. But I have to be more specific when I say that. Here's what I mean. Uh, We're more connected right now than we've ever been. We have access to more information, probably more than, than all previous generations combined. I think that might be a safe assumption. Uh, We have more choice, more variety, more availability than we've ever had. Uh, Right now, on my phone, right here where I stand, I could take my phone and order anything in the world that I want and have it at my front door tomorrow. Anything. Dehydrated dog food, whatever that is. Brazilian patio furniture. Uh, A Bluetooth crockpot. Oh, yes. A crock pot with Bluetooth that I can operate with my phone. And not only can I purchase it and have it by tomorrow, but with one swipe of my finger, I can tell everybody I know on Facebook about my new Bluetooth crock pot. Uh, So that my friend Brock from middle school, who lives in Dallas, we haven't spoken since 1998, but he can know that I just got a Bluetooth crockpot. It's very strange when we think about it like that, the, the connectivity of our present age. But here's the truth. Here's the hard truth. Uh, for all of our advances in connectivity, we're not actually more connected. In fact, we're, we're less. We're less connected in many ways. In terms of genuine connection, it's, it's not the way it used to be. Social scientists have really begun to tell us this, but we don't need them to. We can see it right in front of our face. That our collective sense of happiness and contentment and camaraderie is down. Feelings of loneliness are up, significantly up from where they used to be. It seems backward because the more connected we are, the the more it would seem that these things would naturally occur. But in our spreading thin of our connections, we're actually losing the things that matter most. The intimate, personal connection, the things that our souls need most, we're actually seeing fall apart. Now, that's bad news. It's bad news. Uh, But what we see in the scripture today is very good news. And it's good news that also comes with a great challenge for us. Uh, Y'all, the good news is, I, I say this hopefully often, but the good news is when, when God saves us, when God brings uh, Jesus into our hearts and we become Christians, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. That's not merely personal and private and individual. When God saves us, one of the hallmarks of our salvation is that we're brought into a new community, a new family. The Bible calls us the household of God. Now, brothers and sisters of Christ and sons and daughters of God the Father. One of my very favorite verses speaks to this. It comes from Titus chapter 2. In Titus 2, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to forgive our sins. We all know that. And, and to purify for himself a people, plural, for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus died not just to forgive my sins and get me to heaven, but to make me part of a new family, a new community. We belong to him, a people, and we are now zealous for the things of God together. That's the promise of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so the Bible promises us the connection that we so sorely desire, yes, but more than that. 
more than just connection. The Bible says we get a new family. We are birthed and we are sustained by God himself. The family of the church, in theory at least, the family of the church is a bond stronger than blood. Because this is the family that we'll spend eternity with, regardless of any DNA or culture or any, anything else. This is the common bond now that, that unites us forever. This is what God has given us. That's the good news. That community, family, is built in to what we have in Christ. But the great challenge that now comes with that is the fact that this community, this family, it only thrives, we only grow, we're only healthy to the degree that we truly love each other. What God has established, he doesn't manufacture love among us. We've got to desire it and walk it out. God gives us everything we need, but now it's up to us to stretch ourselves thin for the sake of one another. That's what this scripture today is about. Now, this is a challenge that has always existed, regardless of time or location or culture. And so I want to encourage us here. We live in an interesting time, a very difficult time in many ways, uh, with, uh, with the spreading thin of our relationships through social media, things like that, right? But listen, um, before cell phones existed, people still struggled with these things. That's why they're commanded in the scripture. The ancient Romans struggled to love each other well. This is not a new thing. And so we can take encouragement in that, I think, today. This has always been an issue because the human heart demands that God intervenes for us. And so God has to step in or else we're never going to get it right. So we're going to talk about it today. Romans chapter 12. How is the grace of God applied to the church? What kind of people is God producing here? Look with me at, at Romans 12 verse 9 again. Let love be without hypocrisy, Paul says. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. This is love right here. Love is the most basic, most essential command of the church. Most of us know that. Love, right? It's the big one. Listen to how Jesus frames it in John 13. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, that's not new. What's new about that? We've, We've always known that. But here's what's new. Even as I have loved you, Jesus says, that you also love one another. It's the quality of love he's talking about. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We see in that one little scripture right there from John, Jesus is telling us what love is. Love is first, it's obedience to Christ. He tells us to do it. It's also the reflection of Christ to one another. We love each other even as he has loved us. It's a unique form of love. And then thirdly, Jesus says, it's our witness to the watching world. How will men know who we really are? They'll know us by our love. That's the proof of our discipleship to Jesus. Okay? Now, we, that's, this is not new information. We all know that we're called to love each other, right? It's very basic. It's essential. This is what the church is. But you notice how Paul offers a distinction? Paul does not command us to love each other. He assumes that we do. He's talking about a certain kind of love in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Uh, Hypocrisy, that's an old Greek word that was used in the theater. It literally means, hypocrisy means to speak out from behind a mask. 
because the actors in the, the ancient Greek theater, they would wear masks to contort their faces because they wanted to play a part, right? And so they would speak out from behind the mask. They were pretending, they were acting, they were somebody else. That's what hypocrisy means. Now, is it possible to love like that, to love in a hypocritical way, to love in a pretend kind of way? Because that's what Paul's warning against. Is that possible? Uh, Supposing somebody's going through a hard time and we say, hey, let me know if you need anything. And then he says, oh, okay, can you drive me to the doctor on Thursday? And right then in that moment, we're, what, what we're saying on the outside is, mm, Thursday, uh, I don't know, Thursday. What we're thinking is, oh, man, you weren't supposed to ask me to actually do something for you. I mean, that, what, in, in that moment, did I really mean what I offered, or was I just pretending to be loving? I just wanted to give the appearance of being loving. Uh, many of us have kind of learned the art of hypocrisy well. And I know that sounds bad, but it's just the truth. We, we learn how to operate, how to navigate the world in a hypocritical way. We can play the part. We can act out a role. We can be nice to somebody's face and then turn right around and resent them and judge them and gossip right behind their back. Um, Paul says that's good acting, perhaps, but that's not love. There is no such thing as pretend love. In fact, the word Paul uses for love, right there in verse 9, it's the word agape, which is the strongest form of love given to us in the Bible. It's self-sacrificing love. Agape is the word used for God sending his own son into the world. He loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. This is the kind of love that's meant to be uniquely visible within the church. This is what Jesus was talking about when he told us to love one another. Therefore, this is the kind of love we cannot fake. We cannot fake it. And we should be very careful to recognize when we do, when we try to love hypocritically, see how Paul couples together that verse, verse 9. He doesn't end with let love be without hypocrisy. He says also what? Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. That's not a separate conversation. This is all meant to tie together. Y'all, hypocrisy might help the world go round. But to those who know Jesus, we should call it what it is. Paul says it's evil. We should hate evil, all evil, of course, but we should hate any evil that masquerades as love. Any pretend love is not of God. Instead, Paul says, cling to what is good. Goodness ought to be glued on to us. We don't pick it up and drop it according to the need of the moment. Goodness is essential to who we are. That's how love is meant to work. Love is pure, right? Love is kind. Love is sacrificing. Love is not pretend. Now, that's a very general command. Everything in verse 9 is pretty general. And so when Paul says love in a way that reflects goodness and purity, what does he mean? Look at verse 10. He gets a little more specific. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Commit yourselves to each other, he says, in brotherly affection. There's family language right there. 
That, y'all, we don't, we're not meant to look around the church and do cost-benefit analysis. Is this person worth being my friend? Is, what does this person have to offer me? If I befriend her or him, is it going to get too messy, too needy, too difficult? Am I going to be able to set appropriate boundaries to, to maintain my comforts? We don't do cost-benefit analysis within the church. The command right here is to reject our own self-interest. And therefore, we esteem the other person as more important than us. And see, that's what Paul means. When Paul says, give preference to one another in honor, he's saying that we have a mind when we look at others that I want to see them esteemed. That's my job. That's my role. That's my responsibility and my privilege within the church is to esteem others. And so if we, if we ask that question, what would it look like in a church if we all, all of us, committed to honor each other in that way? It would be like a kindness standoff. It would be like Chick-fil-A employee training every Sunday. My pleasure, my pleasure, no, my pleasure. My, we'd, we'd, and, that's, and that's how Paul is actually phrasing this. He's talking about almost like it's a competition. Outdo one another in honor. Who is it that can be the most honoring, encouraging, greatest blessing in this church? Who, who can do it? And that we'd all want to raise our hands and step across that line and say, me, 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 me outdo one another in how we honor and give preference to each other. See, these are the implications of agape love. I'm meant to consider you more important than me. Philippians 2. I should want to see you honored above me. I should care more about your good, what's good for you, even if it doesn't benefit me, even if there's nothing in it for me. And y'all, if we, if we define love like this, if this is what Paul's talking about in this chapter, then we have to acknowledge how radical this is. This is not love as we naturally define it or as the culture defines it. Everybody believes in love, but not like this. Not love that is truly costly. Not love that doesn't seek its own. This is real love. This is what Jesus meant when he said, even as I have loved you, so you now love one another. That's how the world is going to know who we are and what we're about. Because this kind of love doesn't just happen. It never just happens. This summer, we'll celebrate the Olympics, and everybody will share the stage together and walk out in their colors, and it's going to be a wonderful expression of unity. Why can't things always be just like that? Y'all, whatever that is, can't touch this. That's not what we're talking about. Not surface-level unity and tolerance. We're talking about deep, profound, self-sacrificing love. And this love only happens according to the grace of God given to us. And that's why, if you notice what Paul does here in the middle, Paul does not keep the attention focused squarely on us, even though the commands are for us. In verses 11 and 12, he turns us Godward. Look at how 11 and 12 read. He says, Not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Don't lag behind. He says, don't get lazy. Don't get distracted when it comes to loving each other because love requires diligence. But you notice 
the source. What is the source of all these commands? What's the source of our diligence? He says, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. To love each other is to serve God. Y'all, that, that little phrase, fervent in spirit, it seems like Paul right there is simply telling us to be passionate in our own hearts for one another. Be fervent in spirit. Uh, I tend to think that the translation is not as helpful right here because it, at least the, the New American Standard that I use has a lowercase s for spirit. And I believe that Paul is actually referencing the capital S Holy Spirit here because the way the verse actually reads, verse 11, it reads, be set on fire by the Spirit. That's what fervency is. It's almost like a pot on the stove, and it reads, be boiling over in the Spirit. And in that case, that's not my Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit bringing uh, heat, right? Bringing a, a boiling point into my heart so that I may be loving. This is really the work of God in my heart and in yours. This is not just the human spirit being set aflame, boiling over, but this is God's work. And that, y'all, this is important. Because we might be tempted to think, just like with the Olympics, we might be tempted to think that we can produce this. Given enough time and effort, given enough education or whatever, I mean, whatever it may be, we can build the kind of loving world that we all want to see. But y'all, the the scripture is clear and our own experience, I hope, testifies that we can't create this. Not what Paul's talking about. We can manufacture some kind of affection and and hypocritical love, right? But, But not this. God has to do this. Only the boiling over of the Spirit of God in our hearts is going to produce this. Um, this is, listen to how the Apostle John puts it. One of my favorite scriptures from 1 John chapter 4. I quote it often, but I'm going to read a little more of it for us. Paul says, uh, John says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. See, love originates with God. God is love, John tells us. And the fullest expression of God's love is in, his, in the sending of his Son to atone for our sins. This is where we get agape love from. This is self-sacrificing love. A love that sacrifices for the sake of others, for the good of others, regardless of the cost to me. That was Jesus' mentality when he entered into our world and died for our sake. Whatever it cost him to love us, the cost was not too high. He gave his own life. Now, it would make sense, 1 John 4, it would make sense for John to say, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love him, right? And that's understood. Of course, we're supposed to love God, but that's not what John says. He doesn't reciprocate. If God loved us, we ought to love God. Of course we should. But, but John actually gives us this very strange transition. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Because when we love each other, John says, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's what's at stake here. 
The love of God is meant to transmit. It's meant to spill over for the sake of others, for the sake of the church. Y'all, when, when Jesus died for our sins, we saw this a minute ago in Titus 2, when Jesus died for our sins, part of his purpose was to create a new people, a new family, a family of people who actually, truly, really love each other. And because we are able to love each other, we're, we're, we have an unmistakable defining reality. This is who we are. We are his disciples. This is a love that, that we can't manufacture, and so it's got to come from the Holy Spirit. It's fueled by the Holy Spirit. And that's why we see verses 11 and 12, Paul, it's almost like Paul takes a step back and says, make sure that your love is centered rightly, that it's centered on Christ. You see verse 12 again. He says, uh, rejoice in hope, endure in trial, devote yourselves to prayer. Those are all things we do together, but we're not looking at each other. We're looking to Jesus, right? We're rejoicing in hope, right? The hope of Christ. We're enduring in trial. We do that together. We actually do it best together when we're not siphoned off and alone. And we devote ourselves to prayer. We ask God continually for the grace to do this. Now, I want to stop for just a second. Embrace the awkwardness here for, for me, with me just a minute. Just take a look around. Just look to your right and your left. Don't stare, all right? Don't stare. Just look for a second around. Okay. Um, I mean this when I say it. Y'all are a lovable bunch of people. I really mean that. Uh, you can ask Jennifer. When, when, when I'm at home, away from you guys, I speak very highly of you. I really do. I love you guys. And you're, I consider that you're pretty easy to love, and I hope that, we're, that I'm okay on my own terms. The truth is, y'all, I would stack Harvest Church up against anybody. Gladly so. I'd put us up against anybody. We do a pretty good job of loving each other. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that somehow we've got it figured out, easy as pie, we can do this. Because I hope, what, at least what the Scripture has revealed to us today, is that we're not on our own able to produce this. What happens the more time we actually spend together, we sinners do what sinners do, okay? We start getting annoyed with each other. We start finding fault. We judge and we gossip, we envy, we get passive-aggressive. And that's if we're lucky. You know, the sad truth is that many churches have split apart entirely because people within the church couldn't stand to be in the same room with each other. That happens. And so we don't kid ourselves. I'm not going to kid myself here. You need God's help to love me. You need the help of God in order to love me. I'm not lovable on my own enough that I can be the object that never shifts or changes, that I'm always going to deserve honor and esteem, and love, and appreciation. That's just not true. I'm a sinner. If you're looking to my lovability as the standard of your love for me, then we're not going to get very far. And see, that's true for all of us. There's not enough good in us that we can create and maintain what the Scripture is calling us to today. And so Paul says, rejoice in hope, persevere in trial, devote yourselves to prayer. It will not work any other way. God has to produce this. And see, if, if, if we believe 
that this kind of love and community ought to just happen, it ought to just exist, then, then we will not pay the price. We will not devote ourselves to one another. We'll just assume it and never actually enter into true intimacy and community. And so when Paul, when Paul, look at how Paul concludes here, verse 13, it gets practical again. He says, we contribute to the needs of the saints and we practice hospitality. Okay, that's the whole scripture for today. Contribute to the needs of the saints and practice hospitality. Now, all of chapter 12 is regarding the church and it's great. Of course, I encourage you to read it on your own. But just for today, this is all we're going to look at. What's Paul calling us to? A devotion, a commitment to one another in brotherly affection, giving preference and honor to one another, contributing to each other, practicing hospitality. He's basically calling us to the ideals that we've seen from the very beginning. Uh, take, take the book of Acts. We always hold up the book of Acts and say, this is what the church ought to be, right? And, and rightly so. They didn't have it all right, but they were doing pretty well. One of the hallmarks of the early church in Acts was what we see in verse 13. Luke tells us there was not a needy person among them because all the people who had means were contributing to the needs of those who did not, right? Everybody shared so that no one lacked. No one was without a home or a place to stay because they took one another in and they treated each other as family, right? Isn't that what he's telling us? That we, that we're, we ought to be generous with one another. Practical love on display, that it's not enough for me to say I love you, that I've got to actually step across the line. And when you have a need, I've got to desire to meet that need. And again, we, we maybe, I say we, certainly it's true of me that so often I'm tempted to stop short. Maybe you too. I love to appear loving. Right? But when there's friction, when there's abrasion, when it gets difficult... That's a different story because we actually have to step across the line and do it. And so maybe if, if, you know, if certainly modern Western American people, you know, we oftentimes, we love the idea of generosity and hospitality, but we also love our house as a retreat, right? That when I get home, I push the garage door button and I watch it close behind me and I'm done with the world, right? PJ Pants are going on, and the rest of the world can, can figure it out, okay? Uh, my house is my house. My stuff is my stuff. My time, my time belongs to me. I don't want anybody intruding upon it. Isn't that an easy trap to fall into? But y'all, what Paul is talking about here, he's not saying, oh, it, reluctantly agree to do these things if you have to. He's actually saying, take the offensive approach, Look for these opportunities. Practice hospitality can actually be translated pursue hospitality, which means we're not just waiting around to see if a need comes up. We're looking for the needs. We're in each other's lives enough that we recognize what's needed, and I want to be the first one to the punch. And we're almost like elbowing each other out of the way to meet the needs because we're not willing to set back and claim my stuff, my house, my time, no, this is a new family that we're a part of. You know, I, I read a, a, an, a really interesting, very good article this week. It was written by a pastor about this issue. He actually was writing about community. And he was making the, the observation that when, when people visit a church, oftentimes we visit looking for 
Community. That's number one on the list. We're looking for connection. We're looking for community. But the author of the article made the great point that community is not something we find. It's something we build. Community is not something we find, but something that we build. We, we spoke earlier about the, the connectivity of our digital age, that we're so connected and it's so easy that we might have this belief that finding real, genuine community, even in the church, it should be as simple as a finger swipe. It should be easy, it should just exist, and I ought to just step right into it, quick and easy and painless. But the truth is, Christian community requires time and patience. It requires prayer and devotion. Real community requires tolerance and forgiveness and service and sacrifice. We never just discover it. It doesn't happen quickly and easily. It's got to be patiently, lovingly, intentionally built. And so this is, this is my appeal to us and to me, that if, if we are longing for true connection and community, this is a good desire that God's put in our heart. I, I suggest that we probably all feel it and have it. But we cannot wait for it to come to us. Don't wait for it to come to you. I've always been this way as an introvert. I don't know if y'all know this about me. I'm an introvert. And so I'm always prone to say, well, if somebody wants to be my friend, they'll come to me. They'll do all the hard work and they'll come on, come on over to my side of the fence and then we can be friends. And, and there, we are, there are extroverts and introverts among us, right? Okay, and we're different. That's, that's true. That's fine. Um, but that's not how this works. Or perhaps the church will just create a program perfectly suited to me and all I've got to do is attend. All I've got to do is show up. No, y'all, we are called, scripturally, we're called to pursue this together, which means we have to take it upon ourselves. God has created this family. We didn't have anything to do with that. We were grafted in by faith to his family. Right? That's God's doing. But if we want it to matter, if we want to really reflect Christ to each other, if we want to really know the joy of what God intended, if we want to be a witness to the watching world, then we've got to be willing to build and not just to expect that it exists. And so I'll, let's make it as practical as we can, okay? Uh, let's, I'm going to ask a series of questions here. Let, let those that apply, apply to your heart. Um, who in this room have I not met and I need to introduce myself? That seems very simple, right? But we don't take that for granted. We don't know everybody in the room. Who, has, who am I going to invite to lunch after church or over for dinner sometime later this month? Who am I going to pray for and reach out to this week to specifically encourage? Uh, who just had a baby? Or who maybe just had surgery and they need a meal? A good meal, okay? I'm not cooking for anybody. All right, I'll go get them nukes, though, right? Who needs help? Who, who's got young kids and we can set up a play date so that our kids can play together and we can get to know each other better? Who have I noticed serving at the church and I want to make a specific, intentional approach, 
thank you for serving. I've noticed the way you do things. I've noticed you cleaning up chairs. I've noticed you running the computer. I've noticed you serving, and I'm thankful for you. You know how encouraging that is, how much that spurs a person on when they feel noticed? Um, who do you know that's going through a tough time and just needs a, needs a listening ear and somebody to help build them up? Y'all, this, the, the, the great thing about God is he gives us thousands of applications. I just gave us a few. Really, just baby steps. That there are ways for us to engage, to step across the line that don't require signing our life away in that moment. It's, it may be, for, for us, a difficult thing because of my nature, my, my personality, but if we're not willing to step across the line, how are we ever going to know each other? How are we ever going to enter into the deeper and more wonderful promises of the Scripture that God has for His church? We've got to be willing to take this upon ourselves. Y'all, we, we have a Savior who loved us and pursued us at all cost. Agape love. When Jesus Christ looked upon his creation, he said, I'm going to enter in, not to be served, but to serve. Not to stand above their problems, but to enter in and suffer with them. And then eventually Jesus suffered for us. Jesus is our perfect friend, and he is our perfect brother. And he has withheld nothing from us. Not even his own life. And Jesus right now is presiding over his church, promising that he will build his church, and not even the gates of hell will overcome it. Y'all, he is all in on us. Jesus has not changed his mind about us, and he will not. And so if God has loved us like that, we also ought to love one another. How would God impress upon my heart, your heart today, to lovingly step across the line so that this kind of love may take root at Harvest Church and that we might be the kind of people that the watching world looks upon us and demands some kind of explanation because that kind of love never just happens. There must be a divine source. And we say amen to that. Let's pray. Father, with, with, um, I pray with a humble heart that we would have humble hearts this morning to recognize the difference. Um, Lord, where, where we, we certainly are in many ways loving people. I have no doubt about that. But Lord, I pray that you would humble us to recognize that, um, that maybe we've, we've lowered the bar on love. We've made it about being cordial, being nice, being tolerant, and those are good things. But Lord, we, we haven't really stepped across the line that this kind of love is costly, that this kind of love requires the Spirit um, to produce it. We can't, we can't manufacture it. That this kind of love is in it for the long haul, that we're not just seeking what we can benefit, uh, but that we're giving ourselves for each other. So, Father, humble us where, humble me where I have settled for a lesser definition of love. 
And Lord, give us, give us together a, um, a wonderful glimpse of Jesus Christ this morning. He is our standard. As he loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so, Father, where, where we fall short today, and we do, will you encourage us not to look to ourselves, but to look to Christ? That he would be our motivation that he would be our standard, that he would be our example, that he would be the engine that makes this thing run. Lord, that we would look to Jesus Christ and see a love so rich, so, so unselfish, a love that crosses every boundary, that he loved us that much and came for us. And Lord, let that love transmit. Let it spill over. Let it be so rich in our hearts that we just can't help but treat one another in a truly loving way. Father, will you, will you help us to take little steps here today? Um, you, are, you are patiently, lovingly building Harvest Church. Um, Lord, let us accept that, that this is, we can't flip a switch here. But Lord, let us take a step today. I want to know others. I want to love them well. I want to honor. I want to outdo everyone else in honor. Father, I want to, I want to look for opportunities to share and contribute and to be hospitable and not just wait for them to come to me. Um, Lord, fix our eyes on Jesus Christ who has done all of those things. He came for us. He pursued us so that he might make us his own. Father, help us to be the church. Lord, not in a facade way, not, not with masks on, but real love because Jesus Christ is in our midst. And so we ask for your help and your grace. Make us diligent in this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.